Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. More than 37 million Americans are affected by migraine. It's a terribly common condition. It impacts one in every five women and 10% of school-aged children. It can begin at any age, usually peaks during your 30s. It includes serious symptoms such as nausea, difficulty concentrating, thinking clearly, sensitivity, light and colors and odors. There are resources available to help manage migraine symptoms. Please talk to your doctor about treatment options and your employer about reasonable workplace accommodations. For more on migraine and migraine awareness, visit womeningovernment.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Dr. Drew podcast. Remember to support the people to support us. And don't forget the Amazon banner at drdrew.com. Look out for the live show. Check it all out at drdrew.com. We have a call-in show now. We do out of my home, believe it or not, trying to resurrect some of the uh, some of the material we used to sort of help people with on Loveline and beyond. And it is my privilege today to welcome Megan Dom. Megan's new book is The Problem With Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. Megan, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. So where shall I start? I've got a million things to, to say to you. One is you very kindly sent me a manuscript of your book. And I, I get stuff like that once in a while. And I don't always read what gets to me. But there's something about the letter you wrote me. Do you remember what you wrote me? I think I, well, I'm a longtime fan. So I must have said that. I just, you know, I listened to your podcast. I listened to you and Adam. And I've just noticed over the last couple of years in particular, we're sort of obsessed with the same things, um, almost to an uncanny degree. So I might have uh, laid out some of those obsessions. You just sort of said, I think you'll find this interesting. I've been thinking about some of the things that you guys are talking about. And there was something about the manner even in which you expressed it. I thought, all right, let me look what's going on here. And I was just in. The book is amazing. So I'll, I want to go over some of the stuff in it without too much spoiler, if you don't mind. Uh, where should we start? Well, let me start with something else. Let me start with, let me first tell where everyone you can find Megan. She's at Megan Dom, M E G H A N Dom, D A U M dot com, at Megan underscore Dom on Twitter. Uh, you have other books. Do you want to tell them about that? Oh, yeah. This is my sixth book. <laughs> so, um, I have a couple of essay collections. I have a novel called The Quality of Life Report. Um, my last book uh, was called The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. Um, I edited a collection of essays by writers talking about choosing not to have children. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. something I um, talk about from time to time. So, yeah, but uh, this is my latest, The Problem with Everything. And, and what caught my attention during the book is you, stru- you, you were struggling from the perspective that I'm often struggling. I, I want to understand the position of my kids and the stuff that they've been exposed to in, in college and universities. And, and, I, and I want to – I, I'm so moderate and I'm always in the middle and I'm trying to understand what's going on. And you, you seem to be doing that throughout the book. Yeah. So, you know, I, like you, have grown weary with 
words like triggered and snowflake. And, uh, you know, I get exasperated by what I see on the college campuses and the sort of, you know, media sphere, the sort of virtue signaling, all these buzz terms that have come about. And, you know, I, I could have written a book just sort of hammering away at that, but you know, th th that's ultimately not very interesting. What I wanted to get at was my internal conflict over all of this stuff. Yes. You know, yeah. I've always, I, you know, I still, call myself a feminist. I, I think of myself as a liberal, although, you know, the, the definitions have changed so much. There are people who, there are people who have accused me of being like a center right person. And, um, that's very disconcerting to hear. Um, so I guess I'm a, I'm a moderate. I, I'm, I'm more of a liberal than a progressive possibly, but, but ultimately, you know, the book had many iterations. I started writing it uh, well before the 2016 election, I assumed Hillary Clinton was going to be the president. It was going to be focused on on feminism and criticizing sort of third and fourth wave feminism. And I thought the world would be able to handle it. And <laughs> then something happened. Uh, we all know what. And I really had to take a step back and say, OK, how do I approach this now? And it really um, took on a, a new form. Explain what you mean by third and fourth wave feminism. Well, okay, so feminism is often described in waves. So the first wave would be the suffragette movement, you know, end of the early, you know, early 20th century, um, you know, fighting for rights, voting rights of women. Second wave feminism is, you know, came along in the late 60s, early 70s. We associate Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and people like that. That was focused on a lot on reproductive rights, uh, some workplace rights, that sort of thing. And then, you know, feminism kind of went away for a while. Um, you know, there was this period in the 90s, it kind of resurged. And then there was this like raunch culture time in the in the early aughts. Remember that? Like the girls gone wild period. And, and you had this kind of, um, you know, reclaiming of, of, you know, sluttiness, for lack of a better term. And so, you know, the last maybe 10 years, we've had third wave feminism. Um, and then what I call fourth wave feminism, which is largely expressed on social media. Um, and those two things kind of come together in a fairly chaotic way. But, you know, a, a lot of what I started to see in, in the last four or five years was this kind of um, hashtag kill all men sort of thing. There was what they would call ironic misandry, misandry being the, you know, male version of misogyny, like hating men. And it was really like troubling to me because it seemed to me the opposite of being a you know a self-respecting empowered woman there was a sort of obsession with men and everything they were doing wrong and it seemed off to me and but at the same time a lot of people i respected were on board with it so the book really became a a, a self-scrutinizing project like I, I wanted to get at what my problem was exactly yeah which and, i i loved you're, you're struggling the whole book which is totally sort of, yeah, which I, which I how I feel all the time. I'm struggling with this material. I don't want to reject anything, and I don't want to claim some crucible that I have no business claiming. Right, exactly. Uh, but it's interesting what you say about ironic misandry. Misandry is that the right way to I pronounce think it? Misandry, misandry. I don't yeah. know. So ironic misandry is an obsession with men. So was the raunch culture, and I was speaking right. a lot during the raunch thing where I was saying, look, you are claiming the mantle of a 17-year-old male, the worst form of the human being. Why do you want to be like that? Right. 
It was an extraordinary thing to see, and, and they could not explain it. They could not explain it. I used to talk to large groups of women about that, and they would just look at me blankly, like, well, that's, you know, I, I want to do that's what I'm supposed to. I mean, I, I well, I feel bad. Really? I, I, what, the way I would actually get into the conversation with them, I go, for you to behave like that, why do you always have to be completely wasted? If it's the coolest thing in the world, why do it wasted? Well, right. and they would eventually answer in every room. I, and I went to hundreds of rooms. They always come with the same answer, which was the right answer. Well, I had to make sure I didn't have any feelings. Oh. Isn't that interesting? interesting. Isn't yeah. that interesting? But now we have an obsession with feelings. I I wonder if the, you know, the feelings over facts phenomenon uh, is a response to what you just described. Maybe. But what I'm wondering is you you went through the third and fourth wave uh, descriptions, but where do the post-structuralists come into this? Isn't this (laughs) isn't this sort of an unraveling that's underneath all of it? Right. So, wow. How, how far, uh, how far back do you want to go here? We have time. We go straight down. We can go. Is this an academic program? I mean, I I like to get, I like to expose people to really important thoughts. And if you want to go all the way back to Foucault or wherever, I mean, let's go there. Well, it's, it's late at night, my time. So maybe we'll skip Foucault, but, but, uh, so, you know, there's this this idea of intersectionality, right? So we'll explain that, it. You have to, what you do have to do is have to explain everything as we co- okay. come across it. Though. So, so, go ahead. Yeah. so intersectional theory is a framework for thinking about uh, overlapping layers of oppression. It was coined by a law professor named Kimberly Crenshaw uh, in 1989, I believe, somewhere around there. She was a law professor at UCLA at that time. And it really, uh, it, it, it had to do very specifically with a, um, a workplace lawsuit at General Motors. There were, there were black women who um, were being discriminated. Their claim was that they were being discriminated against because they were women and also because they were uh, women of color. So the whole concept had to do with recognizing that we can have disadvantages in several different directions. So that was actually, um, that's actually a completely, completely legitimate thing to think about and actually very useful. Um, and then over time though, and especially like in the last few years, intersectionality has been watered down and reduced to this sort of blanket term for this kind of wokeness feminist. So, you know, you'll see like my, my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. Like that's one of those things you see on t-shirts and such. And it, it really has now translated into what some people on the right, and I don't like to use, you know, ideas like this in earnest, but the oppression Olympics, right? So, so we'll see like somebody, well, you know, this person is allowed, this person uh, is a woman, so she has more disadvantages. So we need to listen to her more than we listen to men. But if a person is uh, African-American, you know, we need to listen to them even more because they have disadvantages. So intersectionality really has morphed from a useful, very specific concept into something that uh, really doesn't mean very much, but just kind of gives people permission to uh, boss other people around. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Uh, well, it's it's also a way of sort of uh, keeping a score in a weird way. Like I'm victimized in all these ways and my victim score is higher than yours. Right. I mean, they will literally do that. My understanding is that, you know, that you have sort of 
freshman orientation uh, on college campuses now, and they'll play these games where it's like, you know, take a step forward if, you know, you had this kind of advantage and take a step back. And so you could actually like physically see sort of laid out on a playing field who's in charge. It's, it's just bizarre. It's something that would have been inconceivable, you know, 20 years ago. And now it's par for the course. And you write, I, I'm going to go through some of the topics you address in the book, the Kavanaugh hearings, the, this did inter- intersectionality run amok here? Well, I don't know if that's intersectionality. I mean, that, and I want to be careful, like the Kavanaugh case, it's so, so complicated because, you know, that came up, we, we were in the, you know, the thick of the Me Too movement. You had somebody who a lot of people were predisposed to not wanting on the court. I I think mostly that was a case of um, people just, having an opportunity to access their feelings to the point where they were reacting to something that was quite different than what was actually going on. I know I'm sounding very vague, but I mean that the Kavanaugh hearings were, were, were quite confusing to me. I mean, I, I'm not inclined to like that guy. I actually don't think he has the temperament to be on the Supreme court. Um, but I was troubled by the idea that, something like that um, would proceed with with the, the, the due process there and the level of investigation was was really lacking. I, I think I think both Chris, Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh um, were victims in that case, actually. Interesting. And is there any part of the book that sort of still haunts you now? Things you were struggling <laughs> with that are... It, it was so hard to write this book. Honestly, it was like playing whack-a-mole. I mean, I... <laughs> Started, I started thinking about all this stuff in like late 2014. I mean, I became very interested in the intellectual dark web and I started watching all these scholars and these scientists and neuroscientists and people on YouTube and talking about gender and talking about gender wage gap and feminism and, and race theory and how this stuff was all coming together. And, you know, when you try to take that sort of thinking and apply it to current events. And especially when you start rolling into a political era, like we're in now, it is literally impossible to capture the moment. I mean, I would write pages and pages and pages of something that was going on that felt very urgent at the time. And then like a week later, I would just have to throw them out because they were irrelevant. It is, you know? it is weird, isn't it? it? Madness. It is, yeah. It was so difficult. I hope you kept some of that because it'd be really interesting to chronicle, to look back, you know what I mean? Just in terms of, the the hysteria that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I threw out, um, and you may have, uh, you may have talked about this on the show was, you know, there was the case of James Damore, who was the engineer at Google, Mm -hmm. who wrote the memo um, about, uh, you know, addressing their diversity policy and, you know, trying to sort of get out reasons why there were fewer female coders at Google than, than men. And he ended up getting in enormous trouble for writing this memo and absolutely just excoriated as a horrible sexist and was fired and, you know, effectively canceled from the universe. And that case I really found fascinating and I actually ended up not including it in the book because it was, it's so, it's so polarizing that I I was worried that it would be like the only thing anybody ever talked about, about the book. Is that still as polarizing as it was back when it happened? Yeah. I mean, people really, 
I, I think they, they miss the, there's just an unwillingness to engage with what he said. I mean, he actually, you know, he did not say anything in the memo other than there are fewer women going into uh, computer coding. Uh, let's look at why. And here's a list of the reasons this might be. And actually here's, uh, if if we know those reasons, we are would be better able to take steps to correct that mm-hmm. and, and get more more equity. And you know he was a little clumsy, and he started talking about the big five personality traits. And one of those, I guess, is neuroticism, neuroticism, not yes, with an N. And that set a lot of people off. And there was just this like mess, like misreading of of the situation. And he was just framed as this clueless misogynist and it was like the entire media it was it was i i think that was a case of media malpractice quite honestly oh, it happens oh, all the. are you kidding yeah, happens yeah. all the time and they don't yeah. they don't uh, apologize for it even when they find out they're abjectly wrong yeah because you know the thing is it's too it's too complicated to actually explain what's going on i mean you know really one of my guiding uh concepts in the book was you know the 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 urgency the how crucial it is to have complicated ideas and engage with them and unfortunately we're in a culture that actually you know there are there are penalties for trying to say something complicated we think you know we think in memes we talk in tweets and if you even try to you know, say something that has shades of gray that, you know, you're scratched beneath the surface, you're going to see there's some stuff that's a lot more complicated than these easy narratives. Right. And I, I, I think that's, more. I think that's yeah, very important. I mean, they're, they're realizing now, and a lot of the good scientists are un- becoming to an understanding that a lot of the so-called social science upon which many of these ideas are based is shitty. And not right. only can it not be reproduced, it's insane that we draw any conclusions from some of these studies. Like I would be curious which studies which studies those are in particular. I mean, there's there are ones that that interest me and especially, but um, you, you know, know I, I heard a great podcast struggling with this. I think it was with Indris Viscontis, uh, and I'll, I'll try to find it for you while we're, while we're talking here. Where they they she's re- these are really good scientists sitting down and trying to evaluate what is good science and what isn't, and it, it's it's hard. You right. you want it to go a certain way, sure, but it's bad science. And that's yeah. and that's I think where some of this Dunning Kruger phenomenon is coming from. The the headlines everyone's learning, but the foundation just isn't there. Right, and then you know there's a lot of science now that is stigmatized to the point where you can't even talk about it. I mean, a like, lot, you know, even yeah, evolutionary yeah. science, evolutionary yeah. biology yeah. generally. Yes, yeah. so I mean that's a really interesting one because you know. Evolution, you know, denying evolution used to be the the calling card of the ignorant, right? Yep. I mean, that was just pretty much how you how you spotted uh, an idiot yep. if they did not believe in evolution, like a flat earther, right? Yep. And so, you know, but we sort of like tilted into this moment where because. Uh, evolutionary biology, you know, is premised on, you know, there are differences between the sexes, there are hard facts around bodies and biology. And then out of that came evolutionary psychology, which, you know, let's face it, was really abused um, in, in a lot of corners, you know, you, ha- you took, you know, you had very sort of sound, logical uh, p- precepts in terms of, you know, 
how, you know, selectivity and mating and, you know, what incentivizes men to do certain things and women to do certain things. And, and that's all solid, but then it kind of got like, kind of, you know, taken by the, the pickup artists and it got sort of morphed into this sort of nefarious kind of agenda. And instead of saying, okay, well, you know, evolutionary psychology is useful in some ways and bogus in other ways. And we need to talk about the ways in which it's useful. They just say, Oh no, forget it. It's all, it's all bogus. We're going to throw the whole thing out. And that is just counterproductive and actually impedes progress. Yes. It's weird how science has, after having been attacked from the right all through the 90s, now the left is attacking science. And, and right. from people who've never used, aren't scientists, never right. use science. It's really kind of right. crazy. Yeah. I'm still looking for this podcast for you. I, I'm going to find it before we're all done. But it was two really good scientists, uh, you know, real scientists talking about the social science behind it. And they're both women. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was just a very good conversation. And it was they were just scrolling through lots of studies that just didn't stand up. And mo- most of the studies they were saying that m- many of these opinions are based on just are, are flimsy at best and just bizarre that we would look at or point to for any information at worst. Indeed. I think it might be. Eh. No, I'm still looking for it. Um, all right. So I want to also, I'm going to flip into a different uh, sidebar for a second about typhus. Where were you when you got typhus? Pasadena, my friend. Okay. So you've heard me, Pasadena. you've heard me screaming about it, right? I have, you know, I, it was, it's been exactly nine years. It probably just about, I was probably in the hospital this time, nine years ago. Yeah. I got murine typhus. Um, and it was from, it was a total freak thing. And, uh, I was living in a, you know, perfectly decent house in, in Pasadena and there was an unkempt yard and, um, fleas on, uh, possums that were in the yard and the fleas got on the dog. And the- I, I got to tell you, uh, that was our old concept of what was going on. Tur- okay. Turns out it, it, and possums and raccoons and even, Rats. Yeah, rats. That's where it started growing, right about then. And we had an explosion in 2017 or so. And I saw that happen, and we I knew we'd have a typhus epidemic, and we were right in the middle of it. We've been in an epidemic since the rats exploded. And right about 2010 is when the homeless got out of control in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. So if you want to make a correlation, now, now typhus is endemic in our area. I've seen many, many, many cases. My son had typhus. It's wow. it's terrible. It's, an, it's a it's a it's a life threatening illness. Even though L.A. City wants to dismiss it as just a little fever, I mean, right. please speak to that. By the way, I think I found the podcast. It's a podcast two fifty eight. It's called "Why We Fall for It Every Time." Uh, Inquiring Minds. Inquiring Minds is the podcast which I highly recommend. It's Indris Viscontis, who was on this show when Gary Indris. She'll be back soon. By the way. Uh, and it's two fifty eight. Why we fall for it every time? I, it's a, it's a. She's a science writer, and then Indris is a very fine neuroscientist trying to trying to figure out why we fall for bad studies. If I remember right, she was on episode three eighty. Okay, three eighty. So uh, you had you you know we now have typhus uh, you know all the way to the the ocean in Southern California, all the way to Long Beach, which was unheard of. Uh, right, and uh, it's because of the homeless population. Well, actually, let me ask you, though. So is there a distinction between murine typhus and epidemic typhus? 
Uh, yes, epidemic typhus is a louse-borne disease. This is endemic typhus. So, okay. so epidemic typhus is what you get in a Civil War concentration camp. Like uh, Anne Frank died of that, right? Probably, yeah. probably the lice-borne. The lice-borne. Yeah. They're they're not substantively different. They're very similar. Okay. They're very. They are different illnesses, different organisms, but very similar syndromes. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I got a fever suddenly, I had flu symptoms. And part of what went wrong with me is they, they just didn't get treated. I was, I was a really healthy person. I didn't even have a primary care physician. Like I, I never needed to go to the doctor. And um, I finally did go and they said, well, you have the flu. And they, you know, just sort of, at one point I was very sick and I went and they gave me fluids and they sent me home. And then this was probably about two weeks into my symptoms, um, 10 days maybe. And suddenly I was delirious. My eyes were yellow. I was so weak. I could not even get myself to the hospital. Did you have, um, the, did you have the hand and foot pain, palms of your hands and your bottom of your feet? No, that was the thing is that there were a lot of sort of telltale signs that I didn't have. I didn't have the rash. Um, but you know, at a certain point I, I became aphasic. I, I, the last thing I remember is being, uh, in the hospital, talking to a doctor, not being able to catch my words, knowing the word in my head, but not being able to get it out of my mouth. Um, and next thing I knew it was five days later and I was waking up, I had been put in a medically induced coma mm -hmm. and I had had encephalitis and meningoencephalitis and, uh, DIC. Oh my which, gosh. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the end of the line. That's where you really right. almost die. Yes. I, I really almost died. Um, it was terrifying for the people around me. I was, I had no idea what was going on. Um, and they really didn't know what it was. Even it took a long time, actually, even, uh, in the hospital after that for them to figure out what it was. Many, they thought maybe it was like a Rocky mountain spotted fever. Yeah. Uh, they, they really just didn't know. And then finally, um, the, I guess I guess it had to be like a spinal fluid. They had done a, a spinal tap when I was unconscious. Thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever looks a lot like it. It's very uh -huh. similar, but that's a, yeah. that's a yet another rickettsial disease. But they're all kind of related. Right, right. That's a tick-borne disease. Yeah, and uh, not not in our area so much though. Rocky Mountain, more okay. Idaho, Wyoming, that kind of area. Millions of Americans are suffering with sleep and pain and anxiety. Well, CBDMD is doing their part to bring that number down. They have an exciting new product called CBD PM for sleep. CBD PM blends 500 milligrams of high-quality CBD with melatonin, valerian root, chamomile, and other natural sleep-promoting ingredients to create a powerful, effective sleep aid. That's right. These things can really help your sleep. I've seen people have anecdotal reports. Science not there yet, but these are all good things for sleep in many cases. It works exactly the same way as CBDMD's classic CBD oil tinctures – which you just place under the tongue for 30 to 60 seconds. And, of course, we still have our offer of 20% off when you go to cbdmd.com and use the promo code DRDREW at checkout. Make it easier to try CBD PM for yourself by checking out all the offerings for CBD and, of course, our 20% off for our listeners when you go to cbdmd.com. Once again, promo code DRDREW, one word, at checkout to save that 20% on your purchase of premium CBD oil products from CBDMD. 
CBDMD. It's just what the doctor ordered. As always, a big thank you for listening to our show. We'd like to ask a small but very important favor of you. Take a few minutes. If you're one of the first people to do it, Podcast One will make it worth your while, literally make it worth your while. We'd like you to complete a short survey because the information you give us can help us make things better for the show and for you as a listener. Just go to podcastone.com slash survey and everything will be right there for you. That is podcast one, one word, the one is spelled out podcast1.com slash survey. And the first 250 people who complete the survey will get a $10 gift card to amazon.com. Second prize winners will be selected at random to get a $100 Amazon gift card. Think about that. Free money. It's a win-win. Our shows are supported by advertisers, so filling this out will really help us cater to the needs of you as a listener. So go to podcast1.com, one word, O-N-E, podcast1.com slash survey. Answer the questions, potentially make some money along the way. And we thank you for being a dedicated listener. Blinkist, we love these guys. It's unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser. It takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, condense them down to just 15 minutes so you can either read it or listen to and get exactly what you need. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm highly dependent on nonfiction books, and they're hard to read them all. I mean, they take a lot of time. But with Blinkist, you could be working out or driving. It's an efficient way to get that information, and they have it distilled down to the key elements. Things like Becoming by Michelle Obama or Start With Why or The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all at one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Drew. Again, it's Drew, not Dr. Drew. And you get a seven-day free trial. It's crazy. That is seven days of unlimited free access to read or listen to Blinkist's massive library of books. That is Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Drew, and you start that seven-day trial for free. One more time, that is Blinkist.com slash Drew. I want to touch on a subject that, um, I don't know, doesn't get uh, the kind of positive press that it should, and that's the treatment of erectile dysfunction because there's lots of good things out there. And I want to alert you to some new solutions they tend to talk about – men tend to get ashamed when they talk about it. That, and the truth is that as many as 30 million men are affected by some form of ED. As we say, uh, 40 percent at 40, 50 percent at 50, 60 percent at 60. And the cause is biological. What's even more devastating is that for every case of ED, there are actually two people, the man and the partner, that are affected. The stress and strain that it puts on relationship can obviously be damaging. Now, we all know about the pharmaceutical options. I've been helping people for 20 years plus now. But for some, those treatments offer only temporary solutions. They may be ineffective. They may not like the side effects. And this is exactly where Gainswave may be a great option. Gainswave is a breakthrough shockwave-based treatment that addresses what may be at the root cause of ED, which is a buildup of arterial microplaque in the arteries to the penis. This buildup can impede the blood flow necessary for erection. The Gainswave treatment uses sound waves to break up the microplaque and improve or restore blood flow. Non-invasive, drug-free, very easy to tolerate, takes about 20 minutes. Most men enjoy benefits the same day. Best part is Gainswave reports a 75% success rate. Truly impressive. If you think you or your partner could benefit from this treatment, Look into it. There are over 400 Gaines Wave providers in North America. So to learn more, go to drdrew.com slash wave. That is drdrew.com, a website slash W-A-V-E. Go there today. So, well, after that experience, um, are you concerned about what's going on in our streets in Los Angeles? Yeah, you know, I I hear you talk about it a lot. I mean, I uh, I've been living in New York for the last couple of years, uh, so I'm not in I'm in Los Angeles a fair amount, but not all the time. And um, yeah, it's it's astonishing, and uh, just to, to think that 
you know, that what happened to me, which was treated as such a freak thing and a very severe case and one in a million and all this, that, that to think that, that this could just be happening uh, Epidemic. in, in is yep. astonishing. Hand over fist right now. But there are things, don't worry, there are worse things to follow. So uh, don't worry. We'll, we'll have worse if they don't do something about this. It's unbelievable. It's like, yeah. it's like you, can't even, you can't even believe it. But our government is failing at its basic function basic yeah. function yeah uh, and that they should be well they should be held criminally accountable frankly because three people are dying a day in the streets wow. right now a day wow. these are murderers these are murderers but anyway so let's go back to the the uh, the topics covering the problem with everything now that we've now that we've had our I little into, i don't get into the homeless problem but maybe i'll do it maybe for the back edition please if, I... you, if you talk to please talk to me about it before you because I, yeah. i'm deep in it right now Oh, well, here's one of these podcasts are suddenly going on the air. Um, uh, how about sexual assault on college campuses? I, is it an important topic? I, I, well, here's my general, and we'll maybe focus in on sexual assault, but generally, so, and I think this was part of your struggle in your book too, so many of the things that are brought up by these woke movements are good. They're, they're moving the ball in the right direction. Right. They just get disconnected from reality, and they get disconnected I don't know how else to describe this from your and my experience, even when we were the age of these people advocating these things. It just doesn't ring true yeah. in some way. Talk to me yeah. about sexual assault on campus or that topic generally. Well, so one in five women will be raped on campus. That is a statement we hear a lot. Um, that was never true. There were never any statistics uh pointing to that there was at one time you know there's one study or that said something like i think there's one study that says one in five women will be sexually assaulted uh either in their lifetime or um you know before they're 25 or something like that i think it's maybe in their lifetime now if that's you know that depends on how you define sexual assault that could be anything from rape to um, having somebody grope you, um, depending on the parameters of the study. So uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. Another is that um, if that spectrum is true, you are more likely to be assaulted um, when you are the age of somebody who is in college. So that statistic got, it just got turned into like a meme. It was just an article of faith. Um, it, you know, you had, uh, Obama trotting it out. You had Joe Biden. It just became a sort of um, like axiom. It, it was not. Yeah, it was an axiom. It was a way of saying that you cared about women and that you wanted to do something about this problem. And that's not to say that there's not a problem. There is. I know a lot of women who have been sexually assaulted in college. Um, it is something that you know. It's it's almost always tied to binge drinking. And, what you know, I, I tried to. Yeah, I brought that up many times, and I said, whenever you want to have a bad outcome, you find alcohol. It's always there. They refuse to let that be reported, right? Which right. I find because extraordinary. You're victim blaming, right? Do no, you, I'm just saying I want the problem to get better, so we got to deal with part right. of the problem here, right? I mean, so this is one of these examples of of something where you know we we can't fix the problem if we can't lay out the facts of it. Yep. You know, if you want to do something about sexual assault on campus, which I think we all do, you need to find out exactly why it's happening under what circumstances, who it's happening to, 
all those sorts of things. So yes, but to get back to your question, what has happened uh, is that uh, in 2011, the Obama administration issued this document called a Dear Colleague Letter. It went uh, out to all universities and colleges, and it was basically a letter saying that those schools would risk losing their federal funding if they didn't take, quote, immediate and effective steps to end sexual harassment and violence. And could that be any more vague? I don't right, know. Right. And it used um, Title IX to to make this directive legal. And Title IX is um, something that came up in the, I think it was the 70s, um, and it had to do with equal opportunities for women in education. So it had to do with having sports teams for women as well as men. It never had anything to do with sexual assault. But they folded this issue into it um, as a way of saying, well, if a woman is threatened, she feels threatened on campus in any way, that is denying her right to an education. And therefore, we need to take, take steps. And so one of those effective and immediate steps had to do with uh, changing the standard of proof uh, in complaints of harassment. So it went from um, if somebody uh, accused somebody of assaulting them, the uh, adjudication process went from beyond a reasonable doubt to preponderance of evidence. And preponderance of evidence really means that you have to be just like, eh, you know, 51% uh, sure that something might have happened. So that stripping down of due process uh, created a, a really chaotic situation on, on campuses. And again, it took something that was really important and very real and just sort of blew it up into this, this kind of this, this hysteria and this issue that, that took on almost cartoonish dimensions and, and really undermined the whole project. And, and yet it became gospel. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, the one in five thing. I mean, I've seen, you know, I sit here on Facebook and I I see, you know, mostly women, you know, m- middle-aged women, some I know, some I don't, you know, saying things like, well, I don't know if I want to send my daughter to college. because right. you know, reason, That's a reasonable <laughs> position if you believe the data. Right. Well, I mean, in that case, you know, if, but if that was true, you, you'd have a, you know, you're safer in Afghanistan than you are uh, at Brown University. So, you know, if, <laughs> if you were really going to um, hold yourself uh, to account for having that, that opinion, you would not send anybody to college. So I, I think everyone sort of knows deep down that that's not quite the case. But um, it's been such, it's become such an article of faith that it's almost like if you, if you dare to, to scratch beneath the surface, it's like you're betraying women. You're, you're betraying feminism itself. Right. And that's where a lot of this stuff uh, really starts to, to trouble me. It's like being intellectually honest makes you a traitor to the cause. And that is, is deadly. I, I did found that podcast I was looking for. It's a different one. It's, it's called Rationally Speaking. It is podcast number 239. Uh, and I just lost it. Oh, it's the called the debate. Uh, the de- come on, the the guest is Solani Detani, and uh, it is uh, shoot number two thirty nine. Essentially, the debate on whether the biology between men and women make men and women different. <laughs> and it's looking at all the data that's out there, and looking at the so the cultural studies, the genetic studies, the biological studies, and looking at it honestly. That's yeah, all. and and any honest person in any discipline, you have the debate over whether male and female brains are different. 
Uh, and uh, rashly speaking, number 239. And any, any intellectually honest person that has any background in human behavior and neurobiology knows that it's always both. It's always both. It's always yeah. certain amount. It's certain amount of hardwiring, certain amount of genetics, and certain amount of environment. It just is. And the the number that typically falls in line with the usual behavioral sort of manifestations of any given trait, about sixty percent is accounted for on the basis of genetics alone. Mm-hmm. Just yes. that's the number that generally falls out of most phenomenon, and uh, and that's just it. That's just how it, we're set up. And to right. deny either side of that equation is anathema. It's really disturbing. It, right. Not only is it intellectually dishonest, it's 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 scary. Yeah. And I think also, like, people forget that when we talk about th- this phenomena, we're talking about people in the aggregate, okay? You know, there are always outliers. You know, you can say uh, women, you know, on average, their, their brains are such that, you know, they've, you know, if they're very proficient in math, they're more likely to also be very proficient in verbal skills. Whereas male brains, um, if they're proficient in math, if they're, if they excel in math, there's a higher likelihood that they're not going to be as good in verbal. That means that women have a choice between going into STEM fields or something else. So they're more likely to make another choice. You know, if, if you start, sort of having that conversation, they're going to go, well, 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 that's not true because, you know, I, I know a woman and, and she's an engineer. And so, oh. you know, you're wrong. And it's like, yes, they're, they're outliers. There are always people who are outliers. You know, I'm an outlier. I don't want to have children. I never wanted to. It's that is who I am. I think people need to think seriously about having children, but I also recognize that most people do want to have children and they, and they do. You're right, and <laughs> they proceed to do so. Right, and and they should. Um, and that doesn't mean that that my uh, that my life is invalid. It just means that I'm on you know this other end of the tail. And and we can have you know we don't need to like have conversations about about what's best for children and families. Uh, but then say, well, you know, but but a lot of people don't want children, so it's not right to have this conversation. It's it's absurd. It's absurd. Uh, you said you spent some time on the intellectual dark web. Did you take anything away from that? <laughs> well, and who did you uh, like? Who did you like you on the intellectual like, dark web? I like. So, do 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 your listeners know what the intellectual dark oh, web is? Oh, I yeah. suppose they. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm. I like Heather Hying and and Brett Weinstein. I like Eric Weinstein. You know, I um I don't think I'd go back as far with Jordan Peterson as you do. I think you've been a you've been interested in him like I, yeah since, way before he, way before he got yeah. yeah before but way before his pronoun political stand. Exactly, I, I, exactly. I I've been looking for somebody to pull together anthropology and psychology, and he kind of does that. A uh, little, yeah. little bit Joseph Campbelly, I thought when I first found him, and right. and uh, I like that. I, I got interested in it, and then he got in a very interesting political struggle, and uh, then everyone learned his name. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's somebody, I actually think he, he makes some interesting points. I mean, I like that he's very honest about, about human nature. He just seems to be very direct. And again, he's not talking about everybody. He's talking about most people. Um, But, you know, the thing about him is if you give him an inch, everybody just thinks, oh, you're, you're a Jordan Peterson super fan. You're defending him. Uh, you know, you must be alt-right or you must be alt-right adjacent or something like that. And it's almost like you can't even engage with 
him as a person or his thoughts without just everybody coming after you and saying, well, you're just, you know, you're, 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 you're just entirely bought into what, to what he's saying. And, and the fact is most people don't follow all or most of what he's saying anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so to, uh, to, you know, it's just, it, again, it's, it's so frustrating because there's so many of these issues that, I just think are fascinating. Like I want to talk about them. I, I want to talk about what makes people the way they are and, and what makes women make certain decisions that result in there being a gender wage gap and, and how much of that can be socially engineered out of the culture and how much cannot. Uh, but we can't even get there. If the minute you start engaging, you're just shooed aside as some sort of enemy of progress. Well, talk to me about your struggle and what you took away from the book, because there's a lot of struggle in the yes. book, and a lot of self-reflection, yeah. and a lot of. I, I like it because it has a historical flavor to it. You're you're bringing history to bear on the present, but <laughs> yes, the history back when I was a, a teenager. Yes, well, the, the ancient. Yes. I, I mean, not ancient history, really. It's what, yeah, and, and it's and it's a and it's a period that a lot of us carry with us, which is sort of the 70s and 80s and 90s, and and all of a sudden that became. Inv- invalidated, and now you're struggling with the new synthesis. I, I, I think about Hegel all the time when I think about how things have been going lately, and I'm hoping we we've gone from you know antithesis, uh, thesis, antithesis to synthesis now, and and I'm looking for a new <laughs> a new way of uh, looking at things. And I felt like your struggle was part of that. Yeah, I mean, really, my struggle is all about finding nuance. We've got to be able to to talk. Uh, in nuanced terms. And so, yes, I talk about growing up. I was born in 1970. So I grew up right alongside second wave feminism. Uh, You know, I I think the 70s uh, was a very, you know, it was a very androgynous time in a lot of ways. Like, you know, there were kids, you know, you did not see those pink and blue toy aisles the way you see now. There was this kind of, you know, there was everyone sort of just watched the bad news bears. I say, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of telling that the biggest a uh, child movie star of the 1970s was Jodie Foster, right? Yeah, so yeah. being a girl, you wanted to be a tomboy. It wasn't about being a girly girl. Like, that was not cool. We we couldn't have been farther away from the Disney princess aesthetic. Uh-huh. So you know, then you get into the 80s, and, um, you know, it was still, you know, it was very much, uh, it, it was very much about, w- women being equal. Um, there was not this sort of sense of antipathy between boys and girls. And so, you know, I, I really talk about how I just grew up assuming that I was as good, if not better than boys. Um, you know, there's certainly more women going to college by the time I was in college and, and, you know, buying real estate on their own, which I did and, and all of that stuff. And so it was just really strange to kind of fast forward a few decades and, you know, look around in 2014 and say, whoa, wait a second. Like, why at this moment where women have never had more freedom and opportunities and have never been safer, why are we latching onto this narrative that uh, there is just this all-consuming patriarchy that, that we must fight at every turn and, and call ourselves badasses if, you know, we can muster the wherewithal to get out of bed and <laughs> fight the man every day. I, I just found it ironic and, and worrisome. And how did you sort of resolve that? <laughs> I don't know that it's resolved. I mean, I, you know, I have sort of theories 
about about the generational divides. I mean, one thing I have come around to, I, I think I'm, you know, having thought about this so much, I think I'm, I'm much more uh, sensitive to to the differences. I mean, you know, my generation, we, we grew up, you know, we did not have online pornography. We did not have dating apps when we were teenagers and in our 20s. Um, I think that we were able to learn how to negotiate in-person situations, in-person sexual encounters in ways that later generations haven't had the opportunity to do because everything is mediated. So much is, is digitized. So I think that um, there's probably a tendency among Gen X women to, to dismiss um, some of the some of the experiences that that younger women have just because they're not our experiences. What, what do you mean dismiss? Give me an example. Well, you know, I think that I, I think that the effect of pornography cannot be um, can cannot be uh, it's 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 everywhere. I mean, it, it cannot be diminished. I, I think yep. that there are probably things going on in sexual situations between men and women. I think men probably have expectations sexually of women uh, that were not in place um, yep. 20 years ago. I and true. I think it's crucial for us to recognize. Or, or, or the, who knows what's going on neurobiologically as a result of all that exposure, it's critical windows of development. God only knows. But also they're retreating into the porn from, yeah. from the real experience, from real life. Right. I mean, I'm really interested now, and this is not so much in the book, but I'm really interested in this idea that people are just sort of not mating as much, it seems like. I mean, the women have so far outpaced the men that they cannot find, you know, there's this, you know, the, the they, they cannot find equal partners. And so everyone's just kind of going into their little silos. And I, and I wonder if, you know, part of you see all these, this, these memes and feminism of, you know, we don't, we don't need men and, and, you know, we're going to just like bash them all as the enemy. And I wonder how much of that has to do with them not necessarily being in relationships. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here, but yeah. Um, you know, yeah. So a, a lot of it, you know, I think generation X had a tendency to almost fetishize toughness. We were all about being tough. We were all about being aloof, you know, ironic, detached, all of that. Millennials, Gen Zers, I'm wondering if they do the same thing with fairness. They almost fetishize fairness and they think about, well, how can everybody be the same and how can we be inclusive? And that's not bad. And it wasn't bad for us to fetishize toughness, but it may be that we could kind of have a little exchange and get a, you know, yeah, learn a little the, 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 they fetishize tolerance is what they fetishize. And, <laughs> and the logic of tolerance is ultimately ends in intolerance in the name of tolerance. Right. right. You have to be right. intolerant of everyone who's not tolerant. This is, this is Rousseau writ large. Yeah. It, it yeah. Is. And again, I, I think social media has made people very lonely and the, the the antidote for loneliness is just to go on and like find your tribe on social media and just kind of repeat the same things and feed into the echo chamber. And I hate to like, you know, use word, you know, terms like virtue signaling because it, you know, sound, I sound like Tucker Carlson or something, but it's true. It feeds into a kind of um, loneliness and, and narcissism, but I think really more than anything, a sense of alienation. And it's like, well, I don't, I feel, I, I feel lonely right now. So I'm going to go on Twitter and, and say an obvious thing 
um, about like how horrible Trump is and I'm going to get a lot of likes and it's, it's like a dopamine hit. Yep. Yeah. No, it's highly reinforcing. And, and, but it, it's, again, it's so unnourishing and it's so flimsy and it's so superficial. It, it's, are, are you already thinking about your next book or are you just, can you, can you, are you thinking that far ahead or? Um, yeah, I'm always thinking, I'm always, you know, got, got different ideas going on. You know, I literally just, I, I, I kid you not. It's like, I finished this book two weeks ago. I was writing up until the last minute. I mean, it was, stuff was changing so quickly and it, it was like, I, I was really taking stuff out and adding stuff, you know, from the moment it was on the way to the printer. So I still very much have my head in this space and going to try to like, figure out how to talk about it and, in, and really in, think in your uh, wanderings through the intellectual dark web, did you come upon a podcast with Camille Paglia talking to Jordan Peterson? Yes. Okay. And yeah. I, I love that conversation. And I also love Camille Paglia talking to uh, Christina Hoff Summers. I, I've watched that probably five times. I, I'm such a super fan of these things. I'm like a multiple YouTube yeah, three I, video. I, watcher. Yeah, I kind of am too. And so, and she may. I, we, I'm just circling back to the post structuralist and, and the fact that so many of the people that are in this deconstructional mentality aren't aren't broadly trained. They, they, and that's what Camille Paglia's point is: who is who is, an, is a true intellectual with a true broad spectrum of training. Yeah. What, do you, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, people can throw around words like post structuralist and Marxist and you know, post-colonialism and critical race theory and all that stuff. And it's just, it really, at this point has become, I hate to sound, this sounds very glib, but it's, it's really just sort of fashionable and it doesn't have anything to do with, with the original ideas, you know, you know, getting back to intersectionality for a minute. I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw herself, the one who coined the, the, the term, she herself said it was designed as a provisional concept you know, it wasn't to be taken and applied so broadly to the world at large that we're all sort of just, you know, bullying each other uh, under the guise of some sort of um, utopian framework. You know, I, I think that there's a sense that we can get to some sort of uh, utopia, that if we just like, you know, we can sort of socially engineer um, the behavior of others and, and create a, a better world. I mean, and that's, that is something that comes out of Marxism. Uh, and, you know, I'm not enough of a political theorist to, to speak, you know, really too far beyond that. But I, it's like, I think it, people kind of just, they want to belong. They want to be affiliated and belong to a tribe that holds a certain set of ideas. But the problem is nobody really understands what those ideas are. Right, and and they're full of shibboleths, and uh, the Dunning Kruger runs mad throughout all yeah. of it. I, uh, Gary very kindly found the Jordan Peter Putson podcast with Camille Paglia. It's uh, episode thirty-one on Jordan Peterson podcast. I just thought that conversation was one of my favorite out there, just in terms of struggling with exactly the stuff you're struggling with in your book. Yeah, and again, I I think that you know, if you're not struggling, then you're not being honest. You know, I was a, I was a newspaper columnist for over 10 years. I was an op-ed columnist in your favorite paper, the Los Angeles Ugh. times. Ugh. And Am I um, wrong about them? Well, I, uh, 
I'm going to take the fifth on that. It's a, it's a really hard time for newspapers and uh, uh, all I know is that occasionally, like your article about Adam, and there's been some articles. <laughs> well, that well, was hard hitting news. But yes. but listen, there's occasionally some articles about homelessness where I think, okay, yes, thank you, and then they retreat into this just horror show of of lies, frankly. But anyway. Yeah, the the media is really uh, being held hostage to a lot of these narratives. It's not just it's you know you see it you see it everywhere, and this has to do with kind of business models and all that. But getting back to what I was saying, I yeah. you know I I've been getting hate mail my whole career. Yeah. You know, since I was in my twenties, I've been writing controversial pieces. I've been engaging with complicated ideas, um, and people have gotten mad at me, and you know, being a columnist all that time, I always say to my students, I say to people, you know, no one will love you unless somebody hates you. Mm. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to be intellectually honest, you're going to upset people. You cannot win everybody over. And, you know, I think what's great about Camille Paglia and also about Jordan Peterson is they don't really care. <laughs> they don't care if they're hated because frankly, that's not the point. Like if you're going to be a writer, if you're going to be a public thinker, if you're not going to say things that are risky and that confuse people and upset them, why are you in the business? Well, this is it, what I love. But also sometimes you get morally mobilized. I, Peterson was mobilized by the demand that he, under law, address people with certain preferred gender pronouns lest he be guilty right. of a hate crime. And he was aware that this led to the Gulag Archipelagos. He was acutely – this is something he's thought about for years, and here he was living it. It moved him. I'm having the same problem with the homeless. I, I've treated these right. people forever. I see them dying in the streets. I have to do something. And so you don't care at that point because you're just moved to action. That's right. That's right. And it sounds grandiose and all of that, but, but I don't think it is. I think, you know, if you're going to do something, if you're going to express a set of ideas or make a point, do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> don't, don't, you know, don't hedge and, your bet. And There's one really thing, one thing Trump has taught us, one, the one, I, I'll put it in quotes, good thing about the Trump era is if you're not in a shitstorm, you don't exist. He, right. has, he has taught us that, that that's well, controlling the narrative and being in a shitstorm. Absolutely. It, it's part of the conversation now. And the other thing I would say is, you know, don't let the Trump emergency uh, be a shield for really engaging with ideas. I think there's this idea like, oh, well, we're in such a crisis that we need all hands on deck. We can't uh, think about anything too deeply. We can't go anyplace logically that might threaten um, the, you know, the, the agenda, the thing that's going to save us from all this. We, we need to be activists uh, before we're thinkers. And, you know, we certainly need activists. We always have. But we need thinkers, too. I, th I and, think we need thinkers more than anything right now. Yes. And, and I think that's a good place to leave this conversation. I thank you for writing the book. I thank you for showing up on the Adam and Drew show. And this show, I, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for sending me the book and the, the letter. I, I'm just deeply appreciative. Yeah, catch. Oh, well. uh, sorry to interrupt, Megan. Catch Megan's episode of the Adam and Doctor Drew show. Not this coming Friday, but the following Friday. Okay, good. Um, anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? No, I just this was such a pleasure. I hope we can continue the conversation. Uh, uh, I'm ready to go. Tell me where and when, and uh, come, if you're ever out here, we'll. We, yeah, I, I, Adam is now in love with you because of the kind words you said about him. So write oh. some more kind words, and you'll be able to come on our podcast anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'll whip them up anytime. All right, Megan. Thanks so much. 
Thank you, Drew. All right. We'll see everybody next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.